Today what we're doing is we're taking the opportunity afforded as we've dedicated some of our sons to the Lord, some of our children to God, to take today to cast a vision for children at Seven Mile Road Church. So one of the things we want to do today is, is ask the question, what kind of thoughts might shape our hearts as we seek to parent these sons and daughters that God has given to us? What kind of things should we be thinking as we attempt to do that? Now, as we head in that direction, as we press to consider that, I want to give you a word of introduction, and that is that there will be a great temptation for many of you who are not parents to tune out for the next 40 minutes or so, right? Because that doesn't apply to you, that applies to somebody else. I want to plead with you, I want to encourage you, I want to, by the scriptures, instruct you to not do that. And that is because the scriptures say that we are one family in the Lord. And so when God addresses any segment of that family, all of our ears should be open and ready to hear what God has to say. Right? You would imagine that if I heard something pressingly important for my wife Shainu or my two-year-old Hannah, that I wouldn't tune out because I would say, oh, that applies to them. It doesn't concern me. Right? You would hope that I would say, no, no, this is not about her. This is about us. And so the scriptures anticipate with, that when the scriptures speak, it's speaking to all of us. And even when we're speaking to a certain segment of the family, we all listen in. Because this is important to us. So when we speak to the men, our women listen. And when we speak to the women, our men listen. When we speak to young people, our older people listen. And when we speak to the elderly, our children listen. The idea is we are pressing into God's word together as a community, as a family. And we should celebrate even when God has something to, specific to say to one part of our family. And so today... We're pressing in together as one family to say, what are we supposed to do with these sons and daughters that God has given to our church? And how are we to see them? And what are our hopes and our vision for this next generation who is to come? And I want to say that despite the beauty and the joy of a day like today, there's a great danger that sort of lurks behind the scenes. Right? There's a, a great danger that can sort of creep into our hearts. And that is that a day like today can produce in the hearts of the parents or in you who are watching this, this ability to sort of kick up your feet and relax. Here's what I mean. If you're a parent, particularly if you're a Christian parent that has grown up in the church, a day like today can tempt you to now just kick up your feet and relax. Why? Because we've bought into this idea, many of you may have bought into the idea and the lie that Christianity has now just suddenly been passed on to these babies. That what we've done here is transferred this faith to the next generation. So there's this lie, this subtle deceit in our hearts, in our community, that Christianity is sort of wired into our genes and we sort of pass it on, right? So we've done this religious thing, whether your tradition is sprinkling a baby at baptism or holding a baby up at dedication, we've marked them, we've sealed them, they are now good to go, so kick up your feet and relax, right? Because we imagine that just like we've passed on skin color or your blonde hair or your blue eyes or brown hair and brown eyes, that just like that we've passed down Christianity to our children as well. You give them your nationality, your background, your ethnicity, your culture, your language, your customs, 
And so you pass down Christianity as well. The danger is that many of you, especially we have a ton of visitors, I wonder if many of you have bought the assumption that you are Christian because you come from Christian homes. That Christianity has been wired down and passed down to you like your genes, your culture, your ethnicity, your language, and all the rest. You are safe. Kick up your feet and relax because you grew up in a Christian home. When you were a baby, dad and mom did something religious to you. And so you're all set. You're fine. You're good to go. Right? Some of us have that understanding that all we've got to do now is feed them and clothe them and clean them and make sure they're well-educated and well-behaved because we've done what we've needed to do. Right? We've sort of safeguarded them against Satan. They are now in. Everything is good. Kick up your feet and relax. Okay, There's a huge problem to that kind of thinking. And the problem is the Scriptures. Because the scriptures are going to fly in the face of all of that kind of thinking. If you've got an assurance in your heart that you're all set because of the line that you came from, the parents that you had, or what they did to you or said over you, the scriptures are going to jolt you. The scriptures in several parts are going to disturb you. For example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that all people are born dead in their sin. So you look at innocent Cyrus or little Isaiah and you would think, what evil could be there? And I agree, they have not sinned. And yet, scriptures say that we are born dead in our sin. That we are by nature, Ephesians 2, children of wrath. That by nature and choice, we are at enmity with God, enemies of God, at odds with God from before we take our first breath. The scriptures say you have a massive problem and your children have a massive problem. That rather what you have passed on to them is sin and a sinful disposition and a sinful nature. What they have inherited from you is not Christianity, but rather your sin nature. That what they've gotten from their first parents, Adam and Eve, is a disposition and an inclination and a proclivity away from God and towards sin. Those are hard words. But they're everywhere throughout the scriptures. The scriptures say that by your very birth, Psalm 51 verse 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so the moment lungs, our lungs enter, uh, breath enters our lungs, the children breathe, they have a huge problem. They have a sin problem. And so the scriptures everywhere say that your children do not simply inherit Christianity. In fact, John 1, listen to this. John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he's going to tell us who got the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John's going to tell us, who are the children of God? And he says, I need you to hear this. They're not children of God by blood or the will of man or the will of the flesh. The only children of God are those who are born of God. This is why two chapters later in John chapter 3, Jesus is sitting with a man named Nicodemus. 
Now, if anyone has a good pedigree, if anyone's got a good family tree, if anyone's got a good head start in life when it comes to God, it's this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is born to the right parents. He has the right pedigree. He has the right lineage and history. The right religious things were done to him as a baby, circumcised on the eighth day. He grows up to be a Jew, and not just a Jew, but the leader of the Jews as the Pharisee. And yet Jesus looks at him one night as they're having a conversation, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, you are in danger not only of not having a front row seat in heaven, but of not even entering the kingdom of God. And he says, Nicodemus, your birth counts for nothing, but your new birth will count for everything. Because it's not those who are born, but those who are born again who will be brought into the family of God. And Nicodemus, though you have the right line and right heritage and right upbringing and right parents, all your I's are dotted, your T's crossed, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You'll find that all over the place in scriptures. In Romans 9, Paul will warn Jewish Israelites, good, circumcised, religious Israelites, everything done that was supposed to be done, not all Israel is real Israel, he says, because it's not by physical offspring, but spiritual offspring. And so he's saying, not all children of Christians are Christians, but only those who are born again. And so I need you to hear, if you've bought the lie for yourself or if you've bought the lie for your children, that your children are not vaccinated from Satan and brought into Christianity apart from God getting involved in their hearts and regenerating their hearts with faith and love to Him, apart from God's grace flooding their hearts with faith and love for Jesus so that they go from being dead in their sins to alive in Christ, slaves to sin to slaves to Christ, and Christ alone makes that transfer happen. So we have great reason to be cautious of a day like today. But here's the other thing. What I don't want us to do is swing from that extreme all the way to another extreme, right? To swing from the danger of assuming Christianity for our kids to going all the way to the other side and having no hope and no vision and no expectations for our kids. That, that we would swing all the way to the other side, having taken sin so seriously that we would expect that if fingers crossed, maybe, possibly, hopefully, they ever do come to faith, that these children will come to faith only after years of rebellion and walking away from Jesus, that after wandering for decades, hopefully, maybe, hopefully, maybe, 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 they might come to faith in Jesus. I don't want us to swing to the other extreme that says there is no benefit for the covenant that they are born into, for the homes that they're born into, for the idea that the gospel will be preached to them, lived before them, declared to them from the moment they breathe. There is great advantage to that. And so we don't want to swing to the other side that says the paradigm for how our children will come to faith is like how anyone would come to faith, even if you've never been born hearing the gospel. So just like the addict on the street or the unbeliever or the Satan worshiper, so also our children might hopefully come to know Jesus. Whether that's going to be at 6 or 16 or 60, we're just hoping they squeeze in a prayer before their death and they know the Lord. 
And I want to say again, the scriptures have massive problems there too. Because the scriptures have great hope for you who are Christians for your children. That, that God loves to save the children of believers. That even though he takes rocks and makes them sons of Abraham, he also loves making sons of Abraham into sons of Abraham. That you would have a heritage that fears the Lord and, and one generation would commend God's works to another and that you would be able to say, my father and father's father worship the Lord that I and my children's children will worship. And so we don't want to go to either extreme. So if we don't want to assume that our kids are in because we've done some religious thing, but at the same time have no vision or hope for them that dooms them to be little demons and little hellions for a long time until maybe God gets involved in their lives, what might our vision for our children be? How, we, how might we see them? How might we raise them? Well, when we need a, a vision for anything in life, who do we turn to? We turn to Jesus. If you've been at church for any time, you know the answer to most questions is Jesus, right? So if a question is asked from the pulpit, just shout Jesus 99% times, you'll be right, right? So who do we turn to for a vision for life? We turn to Jesus. If we want to know how to love or lead or give or serve, we look to Jesus and we say, give us a vision for how we might live. Well, I want to say it's the same thing for how we might deal with our children. Okay, here's the one problem. Jesus didn't have children, right? So how are we as parents going to gain from him a vision for how we're to raise our children if Jesus was never a father, never had children? So what I want to say is Jesus never had children, but I'll tell you what he did have. He had disciples. He had disciples. And as you watch how he disciples these disciples, I think you are given a vision for how you might parent your children. In fact, that's what I want to say to you. I want to cast for us a vision, which is that at Seven Mile Road, when God gives us these children, they are a gift from God, they're glorious, they're precious, but what he has entrusted to you is a disciple, right? What God has given to your homes are young, little disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is someone who finds a master and then spends their days, every moment of every day, living in the shadow of that teacher or that master, following his ways, absorbing his thoughts, learning his worldview, and then imitating that into the world. That's what a, a disciple is. In fact, there used to be an ancient proverb among the Jewish culture that said that a disciple's desire was to have the dust of his master's feet sort of cover him. The idea being you walk so closely behind your master that the dust that kicked up from his sandals sort of covered over you. And I want to say I can't think of a better picture for what we're getting at with our parenting than discipleship. That what we're doing is we're having these little ones who will follow us so closely that the dust of our feet will kick up over their lives and what you put into them will shape who they will be. And so what I'm hoping for us today is to consider a few things of how Jesus discipled his disciples so that we might consider how we might disciple our children, okay? Let's pray. We'll ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll consider some of this together. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the word of God, which gives us life, which points us to life. We pray that you would ready our hearts to hear from your word, to submit to its authority, we are by nature hard-hearted and deaf and blind and dull and slow.
We pray that your Holy Spirit would come even now and open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts and illuminate our minds that we might hear and receive and believe and respond to your word. I pray that you would equip every man and woman with a child here, that they might disciple their children. We pray also for every man and woman here, that they might even hear how you discipled other men and women and consider who it is that you have brought into their life, that they might be a disciple maker. Give us a vision for our children from the Lord Jesus and power by your spirit to live out that vision. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how did Jesus disciple his children? I'm going to give you a few things. One, hopefully these are practical to you. One, train them in the day-to-day of life. Train them in the day-to-day of life. You heard Dan read the scriptures for us from Deuteronomy 6. I want you to hear it again. It starts with the great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then comes the command to the parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when? He's going to tell us. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them down on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, according to Deuteronomy 6, when are parents supposed to instruct and disciple their children? All the time. In fact, any time. If you heard the verses, it says, when you sit down and when you rise up, when you lie down and when you get up, when you come into your house and when you go by the way. He says, when you rise, so that's morning, when you're working outside the house, that's noon, when you lie down, that's evening. So morning, evening, noon, every moment of every day is an opportunity, Deuteronomy 6 says, for you to disciple and instruct and train your children. And so train them, the scriptures say, in the day-to-day of life. That the instruction of God and God's gospel for your children is not relegated to one hour on a Sunday morning by someone else, but rather falls in the realm of all of life at every moment of life to point your children to the gospel. Right, Deuteronomy 6 is the passage that says, When your sons come and ask you, Father, what does this mean? You are to tell them. And Deuteronomy 6 is the context of Israel, and he says, you're to tell them we were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered us and set us free and rescued us. So that in the New Testament, when your sons and daughters come and say, what do these things mean? The idea is you're supposed to tell them we were slaves to sin, but God rescued us and delivered us and set us free. And when are you to pour that instruction? When you rise and when you sit. When you go by the way and when you come into your house, at morning and noon and evening, at every moment of every day, you're to be sensitive to God to take every opportunity to train your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The vision of God, the idea of God, was not supposed to suddenly enter your children's hearts on one hour of a Sunday morning when they go to a class, but rather was supposed to be the air that they breathed of every day of their lives. You train them all the time. Whenever the Lord gives you an opportunity, you're sensitive to where he might lead. And what you find is Jesus did this all the time with his disciples. How did he disciple the men who were following him? I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't find a classroom one hour of a week and pour instruction into them and lecture them for a given time. 
but rather as they walked and as they talked, as they went into a house and as they walked by the way. At every moment, Jesus is constantly training them. At every opportunity he's given, he's pointing them. He's being sensitive to where God might have an opening that he could speak truth into their lives. So, for example, Jesus will walk by the sea and he'll come to some fishermen who are fishing. The conversation turns into fishing and he talks about casting the net to the right side. And wouldn't you know, soon enough, he turns the conversation into, if you've been fishers of fish, I will make you fishers of men. He's just keen for every moment. And some of these seem so simple, a bit cheesy and even childish, but that's the idea. Jesus is ready at all times to train his disciples. Another time he'll feed 5,000. They're all chomping down on bread. Bread. And so he says, listen, I need you to know I am the bread come from heaven. He sits by a woman at a well and they're pouring out water or drawing water from the well. And what do you know? He says, I am the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. He's standing at a funeral. His friend John has died. Everyone's weeping. Death is on everyone's mind. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. At every moment he can, he's taking his disciples and training them in the day to day. All the time. And we want our culture in our homes to be the same. We're seeking God for every opportunity to pour into these little ones. Right? So one of the things in my home, Shainu has now taught, just about taught Hannah, who's not even three yet, Psalm 23. So Hannah can recite uh, Psalm 23. So one day, Hannah and I are walking out of our apartment to throw out the garbage. So it's, it's a journey of 50 yards. And we're walking and we're reciting Psalm 23. We just finished saying, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Three squirrels run out, and Hannah is freaked out to death, right? Just scared, wants to run back, doesn't want anything to do with it. And so I turn to Hannah and I say, Hannah, even though we walk through the valley of squirrels, we will fear nothing because God is with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. I have no idea if that is the worst instruction from the Bible or not. I highly doubt Psalm 23 has anything to do with squirrels. But here's the idea. I want to err on the side of pouring the gospel and God's word into them all the time. And I, have no, I know, I know that my two-year-old has no idea of the depths of what I'm saying. I just want this to be the grammar that is on her tongue so that when these things click... It's already in her heart, and she might have a vision for it from the day she was born. Train them in the day-to-day of life. So sunrises and sunsets can be a vision of God who made these things. Or Elvin told me how he went to the Grand Canyon. You're standing by the Grand Canyon with your son Noah. You're blown away by this creation. How can you not turn that moment to say, who made this? So that your son says back to you, God made all these things. Your child is scared to sleep at night and afraid of the dark. You can tell them. Psalm 121 says that God never slumbers nor sleeps and that while you're scared to go to sleep, there is a God who watches over you and never takes a nap. I have no idea what avenues we take, but the idea is our eyes are open to say, Lord, you discipled in the day today and we want to do the same thing. We want to take every opportunity to point them to the gospel and point them to truth. Two, Jesus 
was great at shepherding their hearts and not their behavior. Jesus was great at shepherding their hearts and not just their behavior. What I want to do is I want to piggyback. If you were here last week, you know that we had a a guest preacher named Gino. He preached from Proverbs 4. One of the verses being that the heart is the wellspring of life. And so you're to guard your heart because it's the control center. And he made a great deal of saying, listen, if you want to know what your behavior is about, it comes from your heart. He said, don't just stop at the level of behavior. Go deeper to not just know what you do, but why you do what you do. So here's the thing. All of that is true. It's true for us, but it's also true for our children. God is not just concerned with their behavior. God is deeply, immensely concerned with their hearts. And their behavior, even at 2 and 3 and 5 and 15, is a reflection of their hearts. Our default as parents is to parent behavior. It's what we see. It's what's obvious. It's what irritates us. It's what gets, we can get to quickly and easily. And yet the scriptures are constantly pleading with us to go deeper beyond behavior to the realm of the heart to not just find out what your kids do and discipline them for it, but to get deeper into why they do what they do. If all we ever focus on is behavior, we will produce good behaving kids with really rotten hearts. And if you read the New Testament, you find that Jesus' biggest problem were with well-behaved people who had very horrible hearts, who were really moral and really religious and really good, and yet whose hearts, he says in Matthew 23, are like a graveland with rotten dead men's bones inside. It's not what they did, but why they did what they did, that Jesus was at such odds and enmity with them. So I need you to hear this. At Seven Mile Road, we are not trying to produce well-behaved children. We are trying to produce gospel children. We're trying to shepherd their hearts be patient with their behavior, and allow their hearts to transform their behavior. We're working from the inside out rather than stopping at the outside. We so deeply long to produce gospel children who behave from the overflow of their heart, not just have figured out what is right and what is wrong. Right? Jesus knew this, which is why so much of his teaching is heart-centered and heart-focused. Right, I told you the story of the, the woman at the well. I'm always amazed at that conversation. You know why? Because only after you get to almost the end of the conversation does the issue of the fact that she has five husbands and is currently living with her live-in boyfriend who she's not married to come up. If I was having that conversation by that well, do you know where I'd start? I'd start with the five husbands and talk about her live-in boyfriend and I'd say, we've got to fix this. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus only after exposing that her heart is thirsting for something. She says, give me the water for for I don't want to come back to this well. And he exposes the thirst in her heart. Only then does he move on to address, and we've got this issue about your live-in boyfriend. God starts from the heart and works its way out into behavior. How does your parenting look? Because all you do, if all you do is grab the toy back and give it back and say, you can't do that, you've stopped short to the selfishness that's growing in their heart. And maybe next time they know not to steal the toy, but you haven't dealt with the sin in the heart. 
And so you need, by God's grace, to go deeper, to shepherd hearts and not just behavior. An excellent resource for you parents is a book called Shepherding Your Child's Heart. It is an excellent resource. Read through it and allow it to shape how you raise your children in the discipline of the Lord. So we want to correct their behavior, but we so badly want to shepherd their hearts. Three, disciple them for a lifetime and not a date. I'll say that again. Disciple them for a lifetime and not a date. Here's what I mean. Some of you who are Christians, in the beginning of your Bible, you have a date of when you accepted Jesus Christ, right? Many of you have a moment in time when you came to faith, maybe some dramatic story, some kind of conversion moment where all of it clicked and you became a Christian. That is glorious and wonderful. And maybe for many of our children, it'll be that same way. But I want you to consider that there is another vision you can give to your children. I I want you to consider, when did the disciples become Christians? So we'll take a man like Peter. When did Peter become a Christian? And if you read enough books and ask enough people, you're going to get five different answers. Because the truth is, nobody has a clue. Right? You've got these different moments in his story where it seems like he's believing and believing and believing, and you have no idea when it all clicked. That's because John 3 says the spirit is like a wind, and you have no idea when it comes or where it goes. It's this mysterious, regenerating work. So tell me, when did Peter come to faith? Some people will say it's right at the beginning. Because if you remember, Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And so maybe it's right at the beginning. He senses he's a sinner, Jesus is holy, and right off the bat, he knows who Jesus is. And others go, no, no. It's it's probably later when they're all in a ship. If you remember, there's this great storm that hits the boat. And Jesus stands up and he says, be still. And the waves are calm, the winds are quieted, everything is still. And the text says, and the disciples feared and believed that he was the Son of God. So maybe Peter became a Christian on the boat. Others go, no, no, it's not that. It's more Matthew 16. If you remember, Jesus has this scene where he says, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples shout back the answers from the crowds. Some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah. And then Jesus points the question to them and says, who do you say that I am? And if you remember that text or know that text, Peter responds. What does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The only problem is just a few verses later, he says, Jesus, you can never die. I won't let you die. And to Peter, Jesus says, you are Satan. Get behind me. Right? So maybe he gets it, but maybe he doesn't fully get it. And then some say, well, it's it's not any of those. Maybe it's when he wept bitterly after he had denied Jesus three times. Or maybe it's John 21 when Jesus restores him on the beach and says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks that three times and, and he says to him, feed my sheep and he restores him. Maybe it's not in the Gospels. Maybe it's Acts 2, when he's sitting in the upper room and the Holy Spirit falls on him and he preaches and speaks in tongues. Hopefully you get my point, which is, I have no idea when Peter became a believer. But rather, what I see is, there's just this process by which he comes to see and see and see and see and see. And I don't know when that date was, But over the course of following Jesus and being with Jesus and being immersed in Jesus, Peter's heart changed and Peter became a believer. So here's what I'm saying. What if your home was so soaked with the gospel, 
so saturated with Jesus, so pointing to the gospel at all times, that it just became the thing that was in your children's lives. And maybe they'll have a date that they can point to, but maybe it'll just be a part of their lives always. I remember reading, and maybe I've said this before, it's like asking your kids, tell me, when did blue become blue? When did you know that blue was blue? And your kids will say, what are you talking about? Blue has always been blue. And what if it is, when did you come to know Jesus was Lord? And they say, but Jesus has always been Lord. I don't know of a day when Jesus wasn't in our home and in my life and Lord of it all. Right? I'll tell you for me. I came to faith when I was nine years old. So someone, I was at a Billy Graham crusade and someone told us what to do and I went to the front. My cousin Jim swears that he told me about Jesus years before that and I had already accepted Jesus that day. I'm pretty sure he just wants credit for my salvation and that never happened, but maybe it did. But I think, as I think about that all the time, I think if someone was told me at six what to do or five or eight, I think God had been working on my heart. And the moment someone told me about Jesus, he had so saturated me for such a long time that I was ready. And what if the vision for our children is that God would be on their lips, Jesus would be on their tongues from the moment they can speak, and that they would not even know a day when he was not Lord. Maybe they'll be like Jesus' disciples, and they'll just come to know him and know him and know him and know him. I'll give you another one. Don't trade them for the crowds, right? Don't trade your children for the crowds. Another thing that I see in the way Jesus discipled his disciples is he never traded these 12 for the crowds. One of the things you'll notice is Jesus has certain moments in ministry when 5,000 people are with him. And the the text actually tells us 5,000 men. So there's the chance that there's women and children up to 20, 25,000 people. If I'm in ministry, I am going to where the 25,000 are. I'm packing out the stadium. I'm writing the books. I want the crowds. You know what's amazing about Jesus? He constantly withdraws from the crowds. He's not even available to them all the time. He doesn't make himself available to them all the time. Think of that. Jesus intentionally withdraws from the crowds and yet pours himself into 12. Why? Jesus knows that his time with them will be short. He's got a three-year window in which to pour into them, but he pours into the 12 so deeply that they will reproduce his life many times over and win the whole world. Jesus' ministry is not wide and shallow, but rather narrow and really, really, really deep. You will have many opportunities to do great things for other men and for God, but do not trade your primary calling to disciple your children for the crowds. You will have no opportunity in life like the opportunity God gave you when he gave your child to pour into them and to multiply yourself many times over through them. So narrow and deep with your children. I remember hearing this interview from a man named Revy Zacharias. Revy Zacharias is a very well-known Christian teacher, apologist, uh, evangelist, preacher. He's gone to every country, preached the gospel to thousands upon thousands. He had this interview, it wasn't a professional interview, it was sort of just a very candid, 
vulnerable interview and they asked him, if you could do it again, if you could do your ministry again, is there anything you'd do different or would change? Great humility and great vulnerable, vulnerability. He said, the one thing I would change is I would spend more time at home. And I was just taken aback by that. This guy has been to all the continents, preached to thousands upon thousands. Millions of people read his books. And the one thing he thought of that he would do different is he said, you've got a span of about 18 years. You've got this window of time to pour into them. And then it's gone. And then what you have put into them, they will live out for the rest of their lives. And the one thing he would do different is just be more intentional at home. I need you to hear, if you read Christian history, you will read that there are so many missionary stories of men who have done great things for God and they are wonderful and noble, but their homes were a mess. And the scriptures are saying, do not trade the crowds. Do not trade your children for the crowds. It's amazing. At the end of Jesus' ministry, you have 120 people in an upper room in Acts 2. Think of that. Some of your family gatherings, Elvin's lunch this afternoon, will have more people than that. Right? Three years, full-time ministry, and he's got 120 people waiting for the Spirit. We've got churches bigger than that. One-man ministry is bigger than that. And yet these 120 are filled by the Spirit, and the whole world is changed. Acts says that the disciples turned the world upside down because Jesus recognized that ministry, narrow and deep, has great fruit. And so disciple your children. I'm going to give you one last one. Point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. It's the very simple one, the most basic one, but I need you to hear that. The thing that Jesus always did with his disciples is he always pointed them back to himself. He recognized that above everything he could offer them, what they needed, what their souls needed above all things was himself. And so he would say to them, I'm going to be lifted up and I'll draw all men to me. Come to me, believe in me, worship me. Jesus was constantly fixing their eyes back on himself. And so I want to ask you parents, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, what are you giving to your kids above all else? And ask that question honestly. Don't give me the, don't give me the church answer this time. What are you giving your kids above all else? Because you can give them a good education and you can give them a good home and you can give them a good upbringing and you should do all those things. But remember that the scriptures say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You give them Jesus above all things. Pour into them Jesus. Pour into them Jesus above education. Pour into them Jesus above your culture, your ethnicity, your background. Pour into Jesus more than anything else. Give them Jesus, right? That's what the disciples needed. That's what the Jesus offered. And that's what we who disciple our children are to offer them as well. And here's the last thing. Whether this be with your children or with the people that God has brought into your life that you might disciple them, you cannot do this unless it's already happened in your heart, right? You can't lead your children somewhere you have not already gone. And so if you do not know Jesus, you're never going to disciple your kids or anyone else. And so I want to ask you what I asked at the beginning. Have you come to know Christ? Are you resting on the fact that you were born into a Christian home or some religious thing was done to you when you were a baby or have you come to know Jesus Christ? 
Will Jesus look at you like he looked at Nicodemus and see that you had the perfect upbringing and the perfect family and the perfect community and all the right things? And will he say to you, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. But you can be born again even today, right? We were born, but we can be reborn. And and I want to say that our children teach us exactly how to do that. This is the last thing I'll say. All what we've said so far is that we are to be like Jesus to our children. We're to be like Jesus to our children. The last thing I want to say to you is, well, then we are to be like children to Jesus. In one passage of Scripture, Jesus says, unless you come to me like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of God. If Jesus teaches you how you are to be towards your children, your children teach you how you are to be towards Jesus. Here's why. Isaiah and Cyrus and Noah are perfect pictures of what we look like before Jesus. How how able is Isaiah? How self-sufficient is Cyrus? If I left them here for a week to fend for themselves, how would they do? Our children are hopeless, helpless, They've got nothing to offer, nothing to bring, nothing to contribute. All they do is reach out with needy hands. And if someone stronger and better does not stoop down to rescue them and pick them up and give them what they need, they will perish. And Jesus says, that's the way you are. That you stand before God like your little child stands before you. You are helpless. You are hopeless. You've got nothing to contribute, nothing to give, nothing to offer, no self-sufficiency, no ability to rescue or save or fend for yourself. And if you've done it, you will perish. But if you will cry out like a little child cries out to their dad, and if you will scream out for help, if you will recognize your helpless estate and turn to God like a child turns to their parent, then God is a better father than any in this room. And he will swoop down and he will pick up and he will rescue and protect and save forevermore. So be Jesus to your children and be like your children to Jesus. So may God's blessings rest upon Noah and Isaiah and Cyrus, and every boy and every girl that God gives to our community now and forevermore. And may we disciple them as Jesus did. Amen. Let's pray.